the beginning of the year, the elders provided us a theme to focus on for the, uh, the course of, of uh, 2022. It's back here, hand to plow, planting the seed, entrenching habits, seeking fruit of our labor. And the things that I want to present this morning really fall in line with that. The, the approach that I'll take this morning is a little different than what uh, Sean and, and Brian have done, but it's, it's still the same, same idea, um, just, just a different approach. The uh, communities that we live in are dominated by a lot of times different things. You know, we can look around us and see uh, certain things that, uh, that a lot of people are thinking about or involved in. And, you know, I was thinking of an example when, when we go up to, to Denver to see our kids and grandkids, especially during football season, everybody's wearing Denver Broncos stuff. Everybody. You know, in fact, it, it, there's so many of them doing it that I feel like maybe I should be wearing it and I don't even like the Broncos. You know, it, it's, it, it's amazing. But, you know, virtually everywhere we go, there, there's something that kind of dominates. And that's even true um, in, in terms of religious influence. When we moved back east to, uh, to New Jersey, we worshiped with a church located in Washington, New Jersey. This is a picture of those folks. Sean, they actually like to be outside sometimes. Uh, you know, they, they do break out in a sweat when you talk about a tent, but, uh, but, but we, they like to be outside, and, and uh, this particular place in New Jersey, of all places, is, is, is beautiful. It's a, it's a state park, and uh, uh, they stayed in cabins and not in tents. But, but anyway, uh, I, I put this picture up here because when we moved there, it was, it was interesting, uh, the, the, the folks that were there. I, I think I can illustrate just by giving you some of the names. There were the DeGrados, the Celentanos, the Grimaldis, the Ruggieros, the Ferenzis, the Lorenzos. <laughs> you see a trend here, maybe, uh, <laughs> Italian. Um, there were also the Dolans, which, you know, that's Irish. Uh, Osinski, I think that's probably Eastern Europe or something, I don't know. But, um, the, oh, there were the Sanchez's, <laughs> but they weren't from the Southwest. He was from Wisconsin and she was from Denmark. But, so, to point out, it, it, this, this group was, was interesting, and, and when we first moved there, we had a bunch of them over to our house. And we're sitting around the table, 10 or 12 of us, and um, we get to talking about spiritual things. And you're like, where, where did you come from? What, 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 was your, what were you, when, you were when you were younger? And uh, I think I was the only one in the room that grew up in the church. Virtually everybody was converted out of Catholicism. You know, when, when you see all the Italian influence and, and so on, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, the point I want to make is there were some seeds. So what about here? What about in the Phoenix area? Big city, depending on where you live, you might have different influences of a religious nature. I, 
I don't know, but I can tell you where we live in, in Queen Creek. Jan and I take walks. You know, when you get retired, you have to find something to do, so we take walks. And within a mile of our house, we walk by or through the parking lot of three large Mormon churches. Within a five-mile radius of our house, there's, it's double figures, you know, in terms of the, the number of Mormon churches that are in that area. Um, this would be true to some extent a lot in the East Valley, in, in Mesa and Chandler and Gilbert. There's, there's a large percentage of Mormon influence in those communities. I mean, within, within that five-mile radius, there's a Mormon temple uh, from our house uh, located in Gilbert. Something else that you see commonly, at least in our neighborhood, and I think it everywhere, is these fellas, uh, the guys on the bicycles uh, with the white shirts, the white ties, the nameplates, the elders um, of the Mormon church that are, that are in the community um, seeking to convert everybody to Mormonism. My question is, what do we do when we, when we see those Mormon elders or when they come to our door? What do we do? I'm ashamed to say that there's been times when I haven't answered the door. That's not a good plan. Um, and, and that's really what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. Um, though that is an opportunity when they come to our door to plant seed. Being in areas that, that, that have a lot of Mormon influence, um, we're going to work with people who are Mormon. We're going to have friends. We're going to have co-workers, uh, neighbors uh, that, that are of Mormons, and, and they represent an opportunity for us to plant seed. Um, so the question that I really want to get into is what should we do uh, when, when, we, when we come in contact with our Mormon friends, neighbors, co-workers, and the elders that come to our door? Peter says the first thing we need to do is always be ready to give an answer, right? In, um, in Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, when the Mormon elders come to your door, they're not going to be asking questions. They're, they're there to convert you. Um, and so the challenge is for us to meet that head on and turn it into an opportunity to plant seed. And, and I think I might be able to give us some ideas uh, that, that we can do in, in those types of situations. We understand, as the elders have reminded us, and as, as we find in the scripture, that our mission is to plant seed. Um, the, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So we plant. If we're planting on good, on good ground, God will find the next step and the next step. We, we, we depend on him to do that. But our mission is to plant the seed. And that brings me to something that Sean's talked about and Brian's talked about. And that's that parable of the sower. It, it, it fits right in with this, with this whole message, doesn't it? Uh, we don't know when we're talking to anybody, really, you know, what kind of ground we're dealing with. Um, is it good ground? Is it, are we, are we planting seed that just goes to the wayside? Is it rocky ground? We, we don't know. And so we plant. 
We, we take the uh, opportunity to plant the seed whenever we possibly can. Um, and really that whole issue kind of leads me to another passage of Scripture which deals with Jesus in uh, John chapter 4. You know, Jesus in that particular chapter is talking about, it talks about him dealing with a Samaritan woman. If you remember the Samaritan woman there at the well, you know, he's talking to her and he's actually planting seed. The difference is, that Jesus is Jesus, and he knows her heart, he knows her background, and he tells her that he's the Messiah. Well, when she left, the disciples are there, and they're saying, hey, you need to get something to eat. And Jesus responds, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples kind of look at each other and says, did you give him some food? No, it's, it's kind of funny the way, the way, the way it's, it's worded. But Jesus responds, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is talking about spiritual food and not, not the food that fills the belly. And then he references that, you know, that at the time of year when this is going on, the harvest is still four months in the, in the future. You know, again, pointing out that we're not talking about food here. But then he says this. He says, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus is talking about the harvest of men and women, talking about spiritual things. He's talking about the need to get the good news out there, to plant seed, to spread the gospel. And so for the next few moments, the field that I want to take a look at is that field that's filled with with our Mormon and LDS friends, okay? So that kind of sets, sets the stage for what I'm gonna do for the next few minutes. Um, there are so many things about the Mormon church that you can read in books, you can get onto the internet and look up things and, and um, you can find out a lot. My purpose this morning is not to suggest that that's where you need to spend your time. There's a lot of information out there, and I'm going to show you where to find some of it, but our time mostly needs to be spent in, in the gospel, in, in the Bible. But to know a few things will be helpful in, uh, in dealing with, with, a, with a Mormon friend or, or somebody who comes to your door. Um, the books are great. The videos can be found on the Internet. But the two things that I've found that are most valuable are, are found on the Internet. One of them is called the CES letter. If you, if you put CES letter into your Google search engine, you're gonna find, find it. Um, the CES letter was written by a fellow by the name of Jeremy Runnels who left the Mormon church. And he left it because he did an extensive study and found all kinds of things that just didn't add up. And so, he not only left the church, he wrote this letter. It's not a letter. It's 131 pages. And he lines it out in 12 specific issues uh, that he studied and, and put in writing um, that, that really details um, very well uh, problems with the, with the Mormon church in a lot of areas. Uh, there's also another letter that's 147 pages long. It's called Letter from My Wife, another member of the Mormon church who decided uh, after much study that uh, he was going to leave the church. Um, 
but he wanted to send a letter to his wife explaining why he'd made this decision. Not necessarily saying, you got to leave the Mormon church too. He said, this is why I'm doing it. You need to know. His particular letter has 25 issues uh, that he studied out. So if you look up those two and get access to them, you're going to have all the information you need uh, to, to refer to if you, if you need it. Okay. What I want to do for the next few moments is just take a look at three things um, that, that I think, uh, I, I think I was looking maybe doing six or seven, but really you could do one and it'd be enough. Uh, but but uh, I'm going to look at three uh, uh, briefly here that, that point out some of the things in the, in, that, that will, I think, help even Mormons themselves question uh, what they're a part of. The first one I want to take a look at is the translation of the gold plates. Now, the gold plates are the plates that Joseph Smith, who is responsible for starting this Mormon movement uh, way back in the 1820s and 1830s, he claims he found gold plates in a, um, buried in the ground in a stone box. He says he was led there by some angel, an angel called Moroni. Um, and then he took those plates and he translated them. Now, this picture here is an illustration that shows up in, in a lot of LDS and Mormon publications. And I'm told that it even, um, hangs in, in some of the Mormon churches. I've never been in one. I couldn't say that, but I, but I read that, that that's, that's what's found there. The illustration here shows Joseph Smith looking at those gold plates, and then there's a scribe writing down as he translates uh, what, what he's seeing there with the help, I guess, of the, the angel. Um, what you see here is not what they actually say happened. Um, this is a better illustration of what actually happened. There was always a cloth, a curtain, or something between, the, um, uh, between Joseph Smith and the person described that's writing down what's said. Always a cloth. So they, the writer cannot see what Joseph Smith is doing. But even this picture is not accurate because you see in this picture Joseph Smith is looking at the gold plates. This picture is a little more accurate of what they say happened. Um, you, you see Joseph Smith, he's the one with the hat in his hand. He would take a, a hat and he had what was called a seer stone and he put it in the hat and then put the hat over his face so that it would be all dark and words supposedly came up on the stone that he would read off and the scribe would write them down. That's what they say happened. Now, I'll give you a little bit of history. This didn't come out of nowhere. Joseph Smith and his family were known as treasure hunters or something like that. They would do this very thing. They would go to people and, 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 and use this stone and hat thing to say, help, help somebody find treasure on their land. Joseph Smith actually spent time in jail because of doing this. So now, fast forward to, to our, our, our Mormon discussion. He says that that's what he did, and, and, and follow what, what he said happened. The words would come up on the stone. He, he'd put the, put the hat over his face. The words would come up on the stone. He would speak the words. The scribe on the other side of the curtain would write them down. And then the scribe would read the words back. And if they said them exactly right, 
the words disappeared and a new set of words came up on the stone and they'd start all over again, you know, and that's how they did this for, for years. If the words read back from the scribe weren't exactly right, the words didn't disappear off the stone and they'd have to do it over again. And, and that's what they did for all this time, according to Joseph Smith. Um, remember that, because when I get to some other things, you'll see why this doesn't make any sense. But that picture is what actually was said to have happened. You use your best judgment as to what you, whether you think that really happened. I, I have an opinion. But anyway, let's, let's go forward to the Book of Mormon itself, the language style, the storylines, and changes that actually have been made in, in the Book of Mormon over a period of time. The language style, if you have a Book of Mormon and you look at it, it's written in King James English. King James English. Now, this was done in 1820 and 1830. They didn't talk in those years like we do today necessarily, but they didn't talk like King James. Okay, so that raises a little bit of a red flag. Okay, it's all written in, in so the angel who was helping him translate all this was speaking in King James English. Very interesting. Um, but, but the next thing, this is where it really starts showing up as a problem. There's plagiarism directly from the Bible into the Book of Mormon. There are 18 chapters of the, of the Book of Isaiah that are found word for word in the Book of Mormon. 18 chapters. Now, there's an explanation. They say, well, the Nephites, I believe it is, um, that, that uh, this is found in, received, uh, they had access to anything in, in, the, in the scripture that was written before 600 BC. And so they had access. However that happened, I don't know. But, but they supposedly had access to that. And so therefore, it's not a surprise that word for word plagiarism is in the Book of Mormon um, from the Book of Isaiah. But by saying that, that causes a problem. Um, the book of Malachi was written around 400 BC. The words that are in, in Nephi actually quote word for word the same words from Malachi. And that was supposed to have been written in 585 BC or somewhere in that neighborhood. So they're off about 150 years. And it creates some big problems because it is. You, I, I've looked them up. It's word for word what's written in Malachi in King James Version, English, by the way. Um, in, in the Book of Mormon. Now, there are also considerable uh, places where actual New Testament uh, words are quoted word for word or almost word for word in the Book of Mormon as well. How did those get there? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's uncanny if, if that's how it really happened, uh, that, that they make their way in there. So, uh, there, there's some real problems uh, with this whole plagiarism issue in the Book of Mormon. You know, and, and Mark, Mark Twain, who is not quoted from the pulpit very often, uh, had an interesting comment about this. Um, he wrote that the Book of Mormon seems to be merely a prosy detail of imaginary history with the Old Testament for a model followed by a tedious plagiarism of the New Testament. And I think he nailed it. Um, so even people back then we're picking up on this, that there, was some, there were some problems with this Book of Mormon. 
some additional things. There are storylines and phrases that are found in children's textbooks that Joseph Smith used as he was growing up. These things found, them, they found their way directly into the Book of Mormon. Apparently he was quoting, I, I don't know, but they found their way in there. Not only that, as a, as a youngster, Joseph Smith was a fan of a series of novels called Captain Kidd novels. Guess what? Places that are talked about in these Cap Captain Kidd novels and names of people, they show up in the Book of Mormon. So it, it's uncanny. You know, when you start looking at all this, you really, it, it just, it, to me, it throws up significant red flags, obviously. And then there's the issue of the changes. Uh, I, one book that I read in 1965, there had been documented, documented 3,913 changes that had been made to the Book of Mormon. It tells me that the, the, the angel Moroni who was helping him translate wasn't doing a very good job. Um, but it's interesting that mo now, most of these changes uh, were grammatical uh, or spelling errors, but there were also changes in, uh, that alter the meaning of the text uh, concerning the plurality of, of gods. Actual names were changed for some reason. Um, chronology was incorrect, and so they had to change that. Um, so these are changes that were made. More recently, there was a change made because of the uh, advent of DNA testing. The Book of Mormon taught that uh, the American Indians were direct descendants of the Jews. They, and, and, and it dates clear back to the Tower of Babel. You know, when, when that change in language happened, somehow a bunch of them made, made their way to North America, and they became the American Indians. Um, and that's the Book of Mormon says that's where they came from. Well, DNA testing proved that the American Indians descended from Asia. And therefore, that created some problems uh, in the Mormon church. And eventually, they changed their sacred writings to, to reflect that. Uh, so a lot of things that, 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 uh, that, that just don't add up uh, as far as the Book of Mormon is concerned. And then there's the issue of polygamy. I'll, I'll, this will be the last one uh, on this. But you know, whenever you hear talk about Mormonism, polygamy is part of the conversation. Joseph Smith claimed from the pulpit that he was not a polygamist and that uh, he did not teach polygamy. Problem with that is that he did. Um, in the CES letter, there, are, there is documentation of 34 women and by documentation, I mean it's in writing, you know, it, 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 it's there. 34 women that he was married to. Other, other uh, documents go a lot farther than that because there's a lot of undocumented marriages um, that, that uh, uh, as many as 59 wives uh, because not all of them were documented in writing someplace. So he was definitely, without question, a polygamist. I had never heard of the term polyandry, but polyandry has to do with uh, 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 somebody marrying a woman who already has a husband. At least in 11 cases, that was, that was the case with, uh, with Joseph Smith. Now, in some cases, the original husband consented to this arrangement. In some cases, Joseph Smith sent the husband off on a missionary journey and then married the wife while he was gone. He was quite a, quite a character, uh, not a good person. 
Um, so, and finally, just on the same line, Joseph Smith was, was uh, lynched in 1844 in Carthage, Illinois. And, and the reason why, he was in jail. He was, he was in jail and he was lynched uh, while he was in jail. The reason he was in jail was because a local newspaper was printing stories about his polygamous teachings and lifestyle. Uh, and he wanted to put a stop to it. So he, 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 he shut down the newspaper, actually broke into the, uh, the newspaper and destroyed their printing presses. And that's what landed him in jail. And while he was in jail, he was lynched by a lynch mob. So polygamy had a lot to do with the story uh, of, of Joseph Smith. Enough of that. I want to uh, spend just a few moments here taking a look at a comparison between the Bible that we carry with us and study uh, and the Book of Mormon. The, book, the Bible, our Bible, is a collection of 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years, 40 authors approximately, um, the eyewitness accounts um, do not contradict. They may come from a different perspective, but they don't contradict. Um, the manuscripts that we have are consistent with recent findings. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The inspiration of the Bible that we study and that we, that we teach is without question. It's proven by consistency. It's proven by its accuracy. By comparison, the Book of Mormon is, was written by one person, Joseph Smith. Um, and we know, just talked about all the multiple changes and so on that, that, uh, that are found there. It's, it's just not reliable, uh, is the bottom line, as, uh, especially when you take a look and compare, uh, compare the two. If we take a quick look at the archaeology that we find in the Bible, um, there, there's a lot of things that we look in there, and over the years, things have been questioned, and yet they're found. And a good example of that is uh, the, the Pool of Bethesda, which is talked about in, in, uh, in the John chapter 5. Uh, that, that pool, for many years, people said, ah, you know, it just doesn't exist, it's not there. Well, it was found. It was found at the Sheep Gate, where the Bible says it was. Uh, the, the first... It was first found, uh, I think, back in the, the mid-18th century, and then uh, further excavations in the, the 1960s uh, furthered that. So it was found. Uh, and, and this is not uncommon when we talk about things that are found uh, in, in the, the Bible that, 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 we, uh, that we have. Another interesting thing that, that I like to, uh, to take a look at is in Psalms chapter 8 and verse 8. It tells us, that the fish of the sea pass through the paths of the sea. In 1855, a fellow by the name of Admiral Matthew Fontaine Morey read this, read this passage, and he says, well, if God says there's paths, there must be paths. And he said he was going to go find them. And you know what? He did. Uh, to this day, this fellow, Admiral Matthew Fontaine Morey, is called the father of the science of oceanography because he found those. Uh, and it was in the Bible all that time. Interesting. The other thing I like, I'd like to point out is that the accuracy of the historical things that we see in the Bible. Um, you know, some of them, there's just not much, a whole lot else out there, but yet if, a lot of times there is. And we've been doing our, our study, or our, our reading of Matthew. Um, 
And in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, listen to this. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Do you know that everything in terms of the place, the decrees, the people, it's just, it's accurate. Compare that to the Book of Mormon. Places that are talked about in Mormon scripture just flat out can't be found. Uh, they're, they're not there. Um, at some point, somebody, I don't know who, appealed to the Smithsonian Institute of all places. You know, what, what about this, this, this Book of Mormon? And, uh, and the Smithsonian Institute, to my surprise, got involved. And, and they put out a document which says this. They said that there is no direct connection between the archaeology of the New World and the subject matter of the Book of Mormon. That's interesting. So, also add to that history. When you look at the Book of Mormon and you want to try to you know, determine if the historical information is accurate, let me give you an example. The Book of Mormon teaches that in 30, 385 A.D., or somewhere thereabouts, um, there, was, there were battles in a place called the Hill Camara, which is located in, in uh, upstate New York, near Palmyra, uh, New York. This hill is less than a half a mile square um, in, in area. People have looked in this area. There, uh, there are supposed to have been over three million or around three million casualties in the, these battles that took place there. There is no evidence, no record, no anything. You know, there's no weapons, no bones, there's nothing there on that hill uh, that would indicate that anything of, of any magnitude happened there, let alone, you know, upwards of three million casualties. Um, people that have been there and, and, and looked at it from an archeological perspective say it's a clean hill, nothing to find. Finally, I want to take a look at the, the witnesses. Last Sunday, uh, Sean talked about uh, the, the witnesses of Jesus, the apostles, and the fact that, that when they were sent out into the world, um, they, they took a message that they never backed away from. And you know why? Because Jesus raised from the dead. They were with him when he, when he was doing his teaching. They were with him for those, those years. They saw him die. And that concerned them a great deal. We know that from the record. But when he raised from the dead, it all changed. They endured difficulty. They endured, uh, um, you know, scourging, whatever, you know, even to the point of death. But they didn't, they didn't back away from, from the gospel. In the Book of Mormon, there are three scribes and 11 witnesses the scribes all left the church. Uh, five of the 11 witnesses were excommunicated. And of course, we just told you that, that uh, Joseph Smith himself and his brother Hiram were, were lynched, killed uh, in Carthage, Illinois. And uh, Hiram was one of the witnesses as well. So the, the, um, the record of the witnesses of, of the Mormon, uh, the, the Book of Mormon, the Mormon church are not good. So now back to a, 
I think, a more helpful part of, of this lesson. So how do we reach out? How do we reach out to our, our Mormon neighbors, our Mormon friends, or the, the, the elders that come to our door? I think before we actually get into that, I do want to acknowledge something. Um, for the most part, uh, folks who are of the Mormon faith are pretty good people. Um, they're, they, they have uh, strong moral character that, that I've observed anyway, and the, the folks that I have been associated with, they come from strong families. Um, they live a conservative lifestyle that, that uh, rejects the nonsense that we are seeing put into our society now. Um, they're close-knit. They spend a lot of time with their church family, um, even to the point that when somebody, and I've read this a couple times, that when somebody decides to leave the Mormon church and they go through that excommunication process, it's a traumatic experience, even though they know it's wrong. Because of those associations that they have, it's very difficult for them. And that's from them, not from what I've seen. That's what they say. Um, so there's a lot of good things that, that we could say uh, about those folks and their, and, their, and their character. But, as we've already seen, there's, a, there's some issues with, uh, with the, the, the beginnings of, of what they have proclaimed their faith in. So, what are we going to do? How do we reach out to our Mormon friends? Well, I think it goes back to what we've already talked about. We, to start with, have to be determined to, to plant the seed. Answer the door if they come to the door. Don't do like I did. Um, they're going to come and try to... Um, if they're coming to our door, they're going to try to indoctrinate us. Um, but we've got to be ready. And, and that's really where the next, next few moments uh, I, I want to uh, plant some seeds for us. You know, what, what, what can we do? Um, the things that I just presented to you, the, the CES letter, the, the, uh, the letter to, to my wife, um, they give you information that you can refer to if you need. My recommendation, pick out one, two, three at the most. Don't spend a lot of time in it, but, but have something that you can, you can talk to them about that would plant a seed of doubt um, uh, with, with somebody. But don't look for an argument. You know, that's not going to get you anywhere. Just plant a seed. But here are some things that you can do. The first thing you can do, once you get to the point where you're talking about the Bible, ask them if they believe in the, in the New Testament or in, the, in the, the Bible. I've done that. And they'll say yes. There's your door opener. Because they, they have to say yes because they're called Latter-day Saints. They accept the Bible. Problem is they don't know what's in the Bible. Uh, and so that opens the door uh, for us to, to talk about Scripture. So if you're talking to one of these young elders that comes to the door, a good place to start is to take them to the Bible and, and, and to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and talk about qualifications. Guarantee they're not going to meet those qualifications. They probably don't even know about those qualifications. Uh, it's, it's a place to go uh, to, to talk to them. Um, you know, you could also stress the accuracy of the scripture that we talked about earlier, the 66 books, 1,500 years, 40 uh, authors, and so on. But... Another scripture that you could go to is Jude 
chapter 3, or verse 3, Jude, Jude, verse 3, written by Jude, he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. When he says once for all, that kind of eliminates in a latter-day revelation, doesn't it? Once for all. Um, but here's even maybe a, 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 a even better passage, and that's Galatians chapter one, verses eight and nine. Paul says, "But if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed." As we have said before, so now I say again: If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Again, when he says there isn't any other gospel, doesn't that point a finger at something that would be called a latter-day revelation? I think it does. Um, and, and you know what? Here's another thing that, that comes from this. Um, he says it twice. My understanding from Scripture is when, when, when those folks would say something twice, they're making a point. They mean it. And there is no room for another gospel when you're teaching the gospel that's found in the New Testament. So that's, that's important. That's a, uh, that's a good one to use. When you get the conversation to a point where they have accepted, yeah, I believe in the Bible, well, here's what it says. Um, and, I, and I think it, 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 makes, it makes a point uh, that, that, that they would listen to. Be determined to plant the seed. Make that, make that your goal. Another thing you can do, and I, I read uh, in some, some uh, stories that, that, uh, uh, about people that, that left uh, the Mormon faith, what was it that helped them make that decision? And one of them was that when they talked to somebody, they let them tell their story. So let them talk. There's a couple things that can come from that. Number one, get a notepad out and take some notes. You know, and, and so that helps you remember the things that, that you really, you know, you see, oh, here's an opportunity, then you can go to it. Um, take some notes. But um, it, it also, let's turn my page here. Um, it also gives you the opportunity um, to talk because you've given them the chance to talk. And so I, I think psychologically, it opens the door for you to have your, your say as well. And I think that's a, a, a good uh, point to make. During a conversation uh, with them, encourage them to read the New Testament for the first time, especially once you've, once you've got them to say that, that um, they believe in the New Testament, encourage them to read it as though they've never read it before because that will help them see what we're talking about. Um, keep the door open for follow-up studies. But the studies have to do with the Bible and not the, uh, the Book of Mormon. Um, pray for opportunities. You know, that's maybe counterintuitive, and yet that's what we need to do. We need to pray for those opportunities um, uh, for uh, to, to be able to deal with, with, with these situations. And by having opportunities, we entrench habits. Uh, the more we do something, we become more comfortable with it. We find out where we could have done something better in a previous time. You can, you can do it different the next time. Pray for those opportunities. 
And never forget that God will provide the increase. We seek the fruit of our labor. We're trying to get to that point. Um, and, and that's what we want to do. That let's plant the seed, give chance, God a chance to do, do his thing. That's basically the lesson. You know, one thing I thought of, wouldn't it be interesting if 10, 15 years from now, somebody moves to Phoenix and they invite a bunch of members from the church in Monta Vista over to the house and they get to talking about spiritual things and they come to find out that most of the people there had left the Mormon church and become Christians. Wouldn't that be interesting? Kind of like the folks that left Catholicism in New Jersey. Is it doable? Yeah. Let's not say no. Let's plant the seed. This lesson has not been designed to uh, talk about first principles, but there may be somebody here this morning that is ready to make that step to become a Christian, to be baptized for the remission of your sins. We're going to have that opportunity here in just a moment to do just that. Um, if you're here and, and you need encouragement, you need, you need prayers, you have that opportunity now. Come forward as we stand and sing the invitation.